News Power Hour. What a warm welcome to Monday, the 13th of December edition of the Biz News Power Hour. I'm Alec Hogg and with me in our virtual studio, Nadia Swart and Justin Rowe Roberts. In your hour of power tonight, you will be hearing from David Shapiro on his 50 years as a stockbroker. Richard Friedland, the chief executive of Netcare, will be telling us why there's huge hope from Omicron. Uh, the Netcare hospitals have only a fraction of the mortalities and indeed even the admissions that they saw in the last wave, even though the figures overall are telling us that there are at least as many people who've been infected with the COVID-19 virus this time around, but it appears as if, as though Omicron, as it's now known rather than Omicron, uh, is a lot easier for the human body to handle. So that's pretty good news. But re- before we get to that and the other stories that we're going to be sharing with you, including a new listing on the Cape Town Stock Exchange, Justin Rowe Roberts, uh, David Shapiro, you've spoken with him often. It's our last one of the years. So I thought, let me get hold of Mr. Shaps and talk to him about this incredible milestone that he's about to reach 50 years of trading on the stock market. When he started, he was telling me, uh, they used to have what they called an open outcry system where the gents would get together on the trading floor at the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, shout at each other and get the orders from each other and jostle and bounce and you'd have guys writing in chalk the prices of the shares as they traded. Extraordinary to think how far the markets have come. Absolutely unbelievable. David Shapiro, 50 years on the market. I don't think there can be any debate that he's a legend of the JSE. Just what he does for the South African financial markets community in terms of advertisements. He loves companies. He's so passionate about it. And he's always willing um, to let one learn about the markets. It's just, just so great to learn from people that have such experience that have been there. And seeing the the amount of changes, I mean, Alec, you'll also be one to have noticed the technic, uh, technology um, technology change over the last decade, few decades. Well, he was David was talking about the ticker tapes, and I guess you guys hadn't come across those. But when certainly when I started in financial journalism in 1980, it was a Reuters telex machine or ticker tape machine. And we would stand at that machine to see what the share prices had done. And every twice a day, there would be little bells that rang, which told you what the gold price had fixed at at that day, rather than today when the gold price just changes all the time. Uh, it certainly was a different era. But I think the story, Shapiro's story, and he goes into it a little bit today, as, as we'll be hearing in, in a little while, is about following your passion. Here's a guy who went to Wits University, He's a chartered accountant, did accountancy degree, and he followed in the footsteps of his father, Archie, who started in stockbroking in 1933. Not much education, but just an absolute love for the market. And, and if we can find our passion early on in life, as David clearly did with uh, trading of shares, we do have a, a joyful and happy life. And he says he wakes up every morning and he's just as excited about going to work today as he was uh, when he was in his early 20s. 
Exactly. I'm sure you've got that passion from his father, those trips to school in the morning. When you're passionate about something and you love it, you tend to talk about it a lot. I've got no doubt that his dad spoke about the market, spoke about com- companies and the economy, and that would have naturally sp- sparked interest in David. And here we are 50 years uh, on and with no signs of retiring. It's it's awesome. He's made a, a huge contribution, as uh, you said, to many South Africans who've learned from him over the years. Nadia Swart, uh, you've also made a wonderful contribution. Not too many people know it yet, but there is an absolutely beautiful poem from a relocated South African that you've put to music and you've voiced and uh, put it onto our YouTube channel on Biz News. Uh, what stirs you into doing something like that? First of all, it was amazing for me to actually like realize the interest that it got on the site because it shows you how many people are actually like, I mean, they deal with the same affliction. They've had to leave. This is their home, but they've had to leave. And so I decided, okay, let me work with it creatively. And it was honestly like, oh, it was such fun. It was so beautiful to actually like put images to it and some music and all those things. And I just figured it was a great way for you know, that really incredible like piece of content to see more platforms and more people. I remember once being referred to a speech that Neil Gaiman uh, did, the, uh, the writer Neil Gaiman, uh, to one of the American universities, the commencement speeches as they call them, which is at the end of the year uh, before the students commence their working careers. And that speech uh, he repeated over and over again, whatever you do when you go out into the world, just make good art. And my goodness, you made good art there. It is a a very moving piece. And I would suggest that anybody who hasn't had a chance to watch and uh, and hear it yet, go onto Business TV on YouTube and uh, you'll see that. What do you call it? A lament? Was it a Sefer lament? It's um, an African kicked out of Africa, uh, departed, suffers heartbreak. Departed Safa's heartbreak, indeed. Well, let's get on to matters of uh, more immediate interest. And uh, it's time now for the markets. RightRock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. On with your other hat, please, Nadia. Tell us what is in the news headlines today. Here are today's news headlines. Health Minister Joe Parler says that South Africans could enjoy a lockdown-free Christmas, but only if they stay put and observe all COVID-19 protocols. Parler says that the data is promising, but the number of hospitalizations is only one factor that is considered when advising on lockdown restrictions with a lot of input coming from health authorities and stakeholders. These inputs would be discussed in a matter of days when a clearer picture of South Africa's festive COVID situation will be available. However, he said right now, indications are there that there may be room to work around further lockdown restrictions. And liquor traders and alcohol companies say they have been increasingly targeted by criminals. Alcohol bans and other restrictions on the alcohol trade in South Africa has led to a surge in depots and traders having their stock stolen by organized criminals, feeding a 20 billion rand illicit industry. In the last two months, the liquor industry has reported two major warehouses hit by syndicates in anticipation of possible alcohol restrictions in December. The industry has approached the course to try and stop the government from imposing further bans. 
and the SIU is investigating a company that was given an open-ended contract to renovate the clinic to prepare it for COVID patients. The appointment was, was made without any scope for the project or any purchase order. The company involved is also currently being investigated as part of the SIU's PPE fraud process. Several inconsistencies around final prices paid and work done were found between the company and the respective health department. Meanwhile, a top police official investigating PPE fraud and corruption at the SAPS was found to have been poisoned. At the time of his death in July, his cause of death was reported as COVID-19. And the National Accommodation Association of South Africa said that about 90% of small lodges and guest houses might soon have to shut their doors due to the number of booking cancellations. This follows the travel bans imposed by a number of countries, including the US and the UK, after the Omicron variant was detected and reported in South Africa, or rather the Omicron variant. (laughs) Justin, back to you for the market report. Thanks, Nards. The JSE All Share Index is flat at 71,700. In the currency markets, the rand was largely flat against all the major currencies to 15 rand 92 cents to the dollar, 21 rand and 9 cents to the pound, and 17 rand and 96 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,785 an ounce. Kruger rand will cost you around 30,000 rand. Brent crude is down at $75.10 a barrel. And Bitcoin is trading lower at 770,000 rand per coin. In the financial news, former ShopRite chair Christo Visa has secured contracts for 400 million rand worth of the real retail giant stock, an indication of his continued interest in the group, the shareholders of which only narrowed, ret- narrowly returned him to the board. ShopRite said in a statement on SENS on Friday that Tamura, of which Visa is a director, reached a series of contracts early in December to buy a total of 2 million shares representing about 0.3% of ShopRite's shares in issue. The contracts paid for the shares were in a range between 201 Rand to 209 Rand, while in early trade on Monday, ShopRite shares were 205 Rand per share. Visa remains the second biggest shareholder of Africa's largest retail group, with 63.1 million shares, or 10.5% of the company, at its year end 2021, behind the PIC, which owns 15.5% of the business. Visa had stepped down as chair of ShopRite, a position he had filled for more than four decades in 2020. Today is Monday, December 13th, and this is your FT News Briefing. The cost of shipping things by air has soared to record levels. It's bad timing. Companies are dealing with a lot of holiday demand. And some gig workers have been mistakenly accused of fraud and even banned from the apps they work on. But it's hard to fight back when your boss is an algorithm. So this isn't, you know, let's look at gig work and solve this problem. This is the start of a sort of algorithm boss relationship that employees are going to have across many, many different sectors. Plus, there's a brand ripping up the world of fast fashion. Our retail correspondent, Jonathan Ely, dives into the world of Shein. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Flying cargo around the world now costs more than ever. Over the past three months, prices have nearly doubled on key air freight routes linking China to consumer markets in the U.S. and Europe. And it's not just the typical surge in demand that comes when Christmas approaches. Supply chains, and shipping especially, are still a mess because of the pandemic. There's a shortage of containers, 
and there are bottlenecks at ports, which means more companies need air freight. And companies are having a hard time finding enough aircraft. On top of Christmas shipments, there's also a rush to transport coronavirus tests and protective gear in Europe to deal with the new Omicron variant. Over the past eight months, hundreds of UK gig workers have sought help after their gig companies like Amazon, Deliveroo, and others suspended them for fraud allegations. The workers say they didn't do anything wrong. They say it was a mistake by the company's algorithms. The FT's European technology correspondent, Matamita Mergia, spoke to one worker in this predicament named Alexandru. He was flagged twice for fraud, but he had absolutely no idea what he'd done wrong. And he was terrified because if he got a third flag, he would be kicked off the Uber platform. But he couldn't risk that. Um, so instead, he just stopped working for Uber. Um, and there's a really interesting recording um, in the report I talk about between Alexandru and an Uber customer service person. You know, the person seems to have no idea what he did wrong either. And instead says, you know, you must have done something because the system doesn't go wrong. So that's the real danger because the companies and the employees at these companies, they, they trust the computer system. They says, you know, if the computer says you did something, you must have. Um, but really, nobody seems to know what's gone wrong, which puts the workers in a very vulnerable position. Um, so companies are only really responding when these individual cases are taken either to court or brought by the union to them. Um, and in Alexandru's case, you know, they then went and queried it and they came back and apologized um, and kind of reinstated him. Or, and so, you know, it's it's really difficult because they don't know really these workers whether the response is because they kind of complained or whether they would have happened anyway. So it's a completely kind of a Wild West space at the moment. So Madhu, what do they do? You know, you mentioned that gig workers in the UK have a union they can turn to for help. But, you know, having an advocate doesn't always guarantee that you're going to solve the problem. It's really, really hard for them to push back. And I think this is kind of why the story is so fascinating. It's the start of um, the automation and sort of the infusion of AI into the workplace. And we're seeing it to begin with um, in in the gig work space. But this could soon be loads of different types of jobs ranging from factory work, you know, to office work. Um, so it's really hard for them to push back because there isn't any real transparency in how the algorithms are being used or what decisions they're making. So when you don't even know what you're being subject to, it's really hard to to fight against it or to query it. Madamita Mergia is the FT's European technology correspondent. Brands like Zara, H&M, and Boohoo have long dominated the massive fast fashion industry. And now another player has stormed in and just grabbed the number one spot in the U.S. in terms of sales. But if you're under 25, you probably haven't heard of it. Our retail correspondent, Jonathan Ely, only recently stumbled on it. We're preparing to move house at the moment, and I cleared out my daughter's wardrobe, and I found a huge stack of Shein delivery bags in the back of it, <laughs> which I didn't even know were there, which, uh, which kind of explains... Uh, where it sits in the brand recognition pantheon. Jonathan joined me to talk more about Xi'an. The Chinese company has been around since 2008 and doesn't even sell its products in China. Jonathan says one of the factors behind its global success is that it goes where the young people are. The brand that they're all using right now is TikTok. And Xi'an has piggybacked on the rise of TikTok very, very 
effectively. The other thing um, that it's got is that it's really, really cheap. If you are a young person on, uh, you know, with um, no earnings, perhaps if you're still living at home or a student or, it, or, or relatively low earnings and huge chunks of your outgoings um, going on rent and bills, cheap is good. So is social media the main reason that Chien is so far ahead of Zara and Boohoo or are there other reasons too? Well, the other thing is quite on trend. So one of the one of the sort of defining characteristics, if you like, of fast fashion is that it copies catwalk styles and things being worn by celebrities and influencers and puts them in front of consumers at modest prices very, very quickly. And the company that started that process is arguably Zara, the Spanish headquartered fashion retailer. And typically, they're, they're pro- the quickest products in their stable get to market in about three weeks. And then along comes someone like Boohoo in the UK, and they've got that by having manufacturing very close to their market. They've got that down to about two weeks for certain styles, only a small proportion of their overall offering. Shein has managed to get it down to about a week in some cases, and it creates many thousands of styles every day, every week. New styles land on its website. So it is very, very quick and very responsive. Uh, and basically it gets sort of catwalk styles in front of young consumers' noses uh, quicker than anybody else. So Jonathan, the big concerns about fast fashion in general are that it creates a throwaway culture of mass buying and mass tossing. And it just adds to landfills and, and it's this emissions producing environmental nightmare. But Shein has come under some specific criticisms as well, one being copyright violation, basically clothes that are inspired by other fashion that crosses into the line of, of copying. Yeah, so there's, um, if you automate this sort of process of scanning for new styles and new trends, and putting those styles and trends into production, the uh, sort of charitable explanation, I suppose, is that things will slip through the net and you will end up copying something that is not yours to copy. And there have been multiple, lots and lots of complaints about that. Um, the, the other thing is, I suppose, labour issues. There have been reports um, in China and elsewhere about uh, subcontractors particularly being paid very, very low wages and working in very difficult conditions. Now, lots of other brands like H&M have taken a stand against cotton from Xinjiang. It's the biggest producing area in China of cotton. And they've said they won't use it if, if they can avoid it. I don't think Xi'an has made any such commitments. I think it's probably quite relaxed about using um, cotton from that source. But, you know, despite all the criticisms, Morgan Stanley is betting on Xi'an to undercut its competitors. Are competitors doing anything to stay competitive? Maybe taking a page out of Xi'an's book? It's difficult to know how much disquiet this company is really causing. There is a school of thought that says it is a bit of a passing fad and it will crash and burn and it enjoys some peculiar fiscal advantages through various loopholes that may well eventually be closed. I think most established fashion retailers will be watching it very carefully. A lot of them have tried to see how it can do its manufacturing so cheaply in a part of the world where manufacturing wages have have risen quite rapidly in recent years. And I think they'll be looking again at their own production and how they can optimise their supply chains better. But of course, all of that will require investment. And uh, investment costs money in an industry where margins are already quite thin. Jonathan Ely is the FT's retail correspondent. Thanks, Jonathan. No problem. Thank you.
Before we go, executive pay has been on the rise all over the world. But the U.S. is in a league of its own. American CEOs earned about twice as much as their European counterparts, according to one analysis, and almost eight times that of Japanese CEOs. During the pandemic, the gap between U.S. CEOs and their workers grew even bigger. Take the head of movie chain AMC, Adam Aaron made nearly $21 million last year, more than double the previous year. As for his employees, who were furloughed nearly half the year, the median pay was about $5,500. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. David Shapiro, 50 years. I can't actually believe it. I read your column in Business Day, uh, when was it, last week, and you said on the 1st of February it will be exactly 50 years since you stepped onto the floor at the JSC. Now, your dad, Archie, he was, uh, he was also a, a legend on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. Was it always decided that uh, young David would be following in Archie's footsteps? No, not at all. <laughs> in fact, my dad, my dad had a tough upbringing. You know, was brought up. Um, his mom, his dad died at a very early age. He never had. Uh, you know, he couldn't go to university, and um, so it was. He came from the south, from Turfentine, Rosettenville. Uh, never forgot his roots, but uh, he was very fortunate in the midst of the depression to get a job. There was a slight, I never understand what happened, but uh, there was an opening that got him into the stock exchange and he stayed there ever since. And he was a wonderful trader. Of course, you know, the next generation went to university and uh, I did accountancy and um, I was never going to be a trader on the floor. You know, (laughs) you had to have a special skill to do that and don't ever underestimate the skills of traders as opposed to what Harold, my older brother, and myself were, were, you know, analysts. We were accountant analysts and that. But um, I went onto the floor. I loved the floor. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a big, big learning curve, and there was a lot that I learned from there. But, you know, as the years progressed, so, um, so I developed in other areas. And as you know, my dad was a raging gold bull. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm probably the opposite. <laughs> well, you, at least you don't go short on gold. But, but David, it is interesting. But, so you go to, you, you went to WITS, you, you then studied accountancy, you were a chartered accountant. That's a respectable career. I mean, trading on the floor on the JSE, certainly from uh, the way that <laughs> I remember those days, there used to be occasional punch-ups uh, when you were shouting out. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, mm-hmm. just give us a bit yep. of color there. The, the, the way that you traded those days, how, how did the orders come in and how were they executed? They were about one hundredth the efficiency of the markets that we have today because everything was literally done on scraps of paper. And uh, you would get orders in that came via telex, via telephone, and you would run to a, a dealer. And this dealer had to shuffle these orders through his pad. Now, remember, he was dealing in a segment of the market. So he was covering, I don't know, it could be, if he was the gold trader, he was probably covering 30, 40, 50 shares. And he had to shuffle these, especially in the busy times. The one thing that I loved about it, you knew when a market was busy, you could actually feel the pulse, you know, of a market. And, uh, I, I loved that. And I loved the camaraderie. I loved the community, you know, the, the community 
we haven't got a community today. We don't have a financial community. If, it, if we do, it's, it's disparate. It's all over the place. But there, everybody was mates with each other. And, uh, you know, Monday morning, you'd come in and discuss whether it was um, the golf, the rugby, the cricket, you know. And uh, so there, was a ve- there were very strong friendships that were formed um, in those years, which continue today. You know, a lot of the chaps who were on the floor, you know, remain friends, even though they were dealing with opposite firms. So I, I miss that. And, and there was a big learning curve there. Like you learned a lot about human nature. You learned a lot about trading, about markets, far more so than you do, I think, on the screen-based systems and that. I remember watching from the gallery uh, which was all glassed in, and you could then look down at these grown men who were running around shouting at the top of their voices, buy this, sell that. And then there were people who uh, were markers, I suppose you called them, who were standing on these big boards and writing in chalk. Quarters. Yeah, writing in chalk when, when, yep. the, when the share prices changed. Yep. I mean, that, that's like a world away from where we are today. Totally. I think if if I go back on 50 years, the biggest change has been the technological change. You know, having come from an open outcry market to where we are today. In fact, you wrote, I read yesterday an article you wrote for a magazine called Leadership in 1987, which was the 100th the centenary. And, you're, and you were actually writing on the change of technology because in 1987, we were starting to use computers for research. You know, that was the start. I mean, the big leap came when we went electronic in 1996 with the internet. But, I mean, we were starting to, to, to get used to uh, putting research onto spreadsheets and so on. So uh, one day I'll send you that article. I'm sure you've got it in your archives. But <laughs> I, I was just catching don't. up yesterday. <laughs> but that was the – Alec, yeah. when I came onto the market in 1972, um, there was no direct dialing to London or to, to anywhere. So if you wanted to deal with your counterparts in London, you used to have to book a call through the operator, you know, and it would come through a half an hour later. And we dealt in telegrams and we dealt in telex, coded telegrams. And so communication, understand this communication, to get information from London, respond to it, send back an answer was a half an hour. Today, it's instantaneous. Now, that half an hour opened massive gaps for, you know, for what they called in those days arbitrage, taking advantage of price differences between shares that were, you know, South African shares that were trading in London and and South Africa. And, of course, we had those counterparts in Zurich, Brussels, Paris, London, New York. So it was quite an international market in that, and it worked. And, oh, Besides that, we were dealing in the blocked rand or the <laughs> security rand or the financial rand. It wasn't just straight currency dealing. If you couldn't, so, yeah, it, then that was the seventies. Yeah. If you couldn't calculate quickly, you couldn't do. Uh, who was it? The one Springbok coach who was counting on his hands <laughs> one day uh, on his fingers. But but David, uh, I, I recall when I started, which was not too long after your. Uh, first day on the floor when I, I started in journalism, Penelope Gracie was my boss, as it sounds. She was female. And Penelope could ne- was not allowed into the RAND club. Uh, when she went to the RAND club for business lunches, she was had to be spirited in through the back entrance. What was it like at the JSE 
when you arrived there and, and the, maybe the transformation, I think it was some years before Penny could go through the front door at the Rand Club. What was it like at the four women at the JSE then? The same thing. I think the first female member was Anne McCurtain, which if I recall was in 1976. It might've been slightly later, but, uh, that was the first, uh, that's when they started to allow females in. The strange thing is that um, I worked for a firm called Max Pollock and Fremantle, and Eric Fremantle had applied in the 50s for a lady who was working for him, Betsy McLaren, to become a member. And I mean, you know, you can't believe how the the committee objected and, you know, what he went through. And And the reason they finally gave him was that there were no female toilets by the trading floor. In other words, there weren't facilities. <laughs> I mean, so he was ahead of his time, and he felt that uh, she'd given so much to the firm that she was entitled to be a partner. In order to be a partner, you had to be a member. But it was only much later that, um, you know, that they started to admit females. I think the – I'm trying to think when they first allowed – the first non-white was Siki Ebrahim which I recall was probably 1981, an Indian chap. He's still with us, or his son still works uh, with me today. And um, I think that was in the early 1980s. David, so, looking, so it was different. looking back over 50 <laughs> years, I know you did touch on this in your Business Day column, but I'd, I'd love you just to repeat it for us, the, the, the big lessons that you've learned about investing in this wealth of experience that you have been uh, exposed to. I think, I think, you know, I, I, management is very important. That was the one lesson. But I'm going to, I'm just going to put that aside. We can come back to it. The one lesson I learned, and I have so many examples, are of ordinary people who built wealth just by being clever, buying the right kind of shares, and sticking with them. And um, I remember going down, I used to often go down to Somerset West and I'd meet people there that I was talking to, not, you know, I was giving a talk and they would come and attend. And afterwards they were proud to show me their portfolios. And here they were very simple folk, lawyers, you know, doctors, the local doctor, the local lawyer, accountant, etc. They had backed Johan Rupert. And they had portfolios in those days <laughs> were in the multi-million rands. And they had just supported him. I I worked. I was very privileged to work for a, a gentleman by the name of Gus Lipschitz. And then in the 1990s, Gus saw the change in the South African economy. And he said, you know what? We're going to have a new middle class and they're going to spend. I'm going to buy Ellerines. I'm going to buy Cash Build. I'm going to buy Bidvest. And all he did, he would choose one stock or two stocks a year and just build and build up for you know he was he wasn't a man who, who boasted about the money but when i saw how clever you know how these gentlemen had built by just following the right kinds of business um just just how successful they were they never they never switched and changed and and went into diversified portfolios or what, let's call it balanced portfolios they just stuck to their strategy and i think it's a massive lesson. If you find the right kind of companies, just stay with them. You know what I mean? You, you know from Berkshire. Just have a look at the multi-billionaires that have been made just following Warren Buffett, you know, from the early ages. Simple, easy folk, 
lived in the lived in Omaha and uh, amassed a massive fortune. And I'm saying, you know, it's not difficult. It's it sounds more difficult. Just find the right companies, you know, and know the management as well. Management very very important. Know that they're acting in your on your behalf, and that's the other lesson. Know that they're not acting for their own self enrichment, but rather to uh, to build a legacy, you know, company a legacy company, and also to look after your interests. So where do you start on both of those? First of all, finding the right companies, and secondly, trusting the management or knowing which management is trustworthy. Time. You know what we do? We suddenly find, you know, we're listening to uh, the media. I'm talking mainly television, you know, and you're listening to and they come up with a new company that's coming out with a new product. Just wait. You've got to give management time. I always say it's like a relationship. You know, you don't you don't find a pretty girl and on the first date she's great and she looks attractive and she's she's fun and you want to marry her the next day. You know, it takes time. It takes time to build a relationship. You have to learn about her, uh, her, her quirks. You have to learn about her family. You know, is this someone you want to be with in the next 5, 10, 50, 20 years? So I think it's the same thing. We're too quick. You know, to to judge companies, and I say the same thing now for almost cryptocurrency. We don't know it. Wait, you know, you don't have to make your fortune tomorrow. So I think it's very important to understand a company, and it takes you time to actually build that trust in the management, you know, of the business and understanding the business. The other thing is themes, and that's why I like to look at the themes you know, and say, okay, what is What's, what's in the same way as Gus said, listen, I see a new middle class coming. It's going to take five, ten years, you know, and that's how he built his wealth. He says they're going to get money and they're going to spend. And I think in the same way, we have to look at those kind of businesses that we think are going to be dominating in the next five to ten years and run with them, you know, go with them. Make that judgment call. And look, some will fail. It's okay. You know, one or two will fail. You don't have to let your ego get in the way. But but go with it. So uh, and and you know we have too many financial people out there, advisors who are constantly at you, you know, trying to get you to change, shift, to go. You've got to go here. You've got to go there. Just ignore them. Just do your own thing. You know, you've got to you've you've, you've got to look after your own money and just be conscious of where you're going. In all that time, in those fifty years, you would have met some remarkable people. Who is the one person who, who perhaps was a role model or stood out for you? I've always admired Buffett. He's a one man and that era that, you know why, because he's just down to earth. You know what I mean? And he's got such a wonderful philosophy on life. I think it just covers every, every aspect of it. And I think if I had to shape myself, it would be around uh, the way that he has um, approached investment. You know, there's never been... And, and I, I don't even think he's out of date at this stage. You know, I don't think that he has ever gone out of date uh, in his thought. You know, you might, re- you might apply it differently. But when you read what he says, I, you know, and I, and I advise every young person, you know, not you know, just to hear what he said. Listen to Charlie the other day, 97, still coming out with pearls of wisdom. Absolute pearls, you know. Even though he was pro-China, but when you listen to his arguments, they actually valid, you know. <laughs> so, so I love those two men, you know. And and I, and and my heart will go when they, you know, because they're ninety-one, ninety-seven. Please God, they can live for another decade or so. 
Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. David, what about you? How much longer have are you going to be involved in the stock market? I've got no intention of retiring. Alec, it's, it's, we don't have to. Do you know what I mean? It's, uh, this is not a physically demanding job. <laughs> you can be here for a long time. And, and I enjoy keeping up with the news. And I enjoy trying to work out, you know, trying to say, okay, what's happening in the world? Where is it going? Which are going to be the new companies? You know, where must we put our money? What are going to be... Um, you know, those, those cash bills or the Ellerines and that, maybe in a global context. And I think that's always a challenge um, to seek them out. So I continue to read. I continue to, to test, uh, you know, test my knowledge. But I think we go into an exciting era, you know, massive, massively exciting area with this whole digital transformation. So don't think this is over. I think we're going into, a, there's going to be a lot of action in the next 10 years. Richard Friedland, uh, we're trying to get an update now on how many people are in your hospitals. Netcare, one of the biggest private hospital companies in South Africa, we're right in the middle of the fourth wave. What have admissions been like? Actually, admissions have been incredibly low in contradistinction to all of the previous three waves that we've experienced. And what we experienced in the first three waves was as community transmission increased, so did in tandem hospital as admission, admission to hospital, and we were under enormous pressure, hence the need to flatten the curve and introduce all sorts of lockdown measures. That is not the case uh, at the moment. Why would that be? I think we're seeing a different phenomenon here. We're seeing a decoupling from the rate of community transmission and that of hospital transmission. It is early days. We've been measuring our admissions since the 15th of November, and uh, clearly, we are seeing very few real admissions for COVID. Most of them are incidental, and I'll explain that in a second. And I think it is because the new variant, however which way you want to pronounce it, is causing mild to moderate disease. And in many cases, it's asymptomatic. We have yet to see um, the severe form of the disease, which is what we define as people who require hospitalization, who've got your classic COVID pneumonia, and have a life-threatening condition, a life-threatening disease that may lead to death. Yes, in the elderly, yes, in those with comorbidities, they still, and yes, in those that are not vaccinated, they're still at risk. But for the large percentage of patients that we've seen, they're mainly incidental findings of COVID. And what we mean by that, uh, Alec, is that uh, they don't need any form of oxygen therapy. If you look at our admissions over the first three waves, every single patient who came to hospital needed some form of oxygen. Their lungs were infected by the COVID-19 virus. In this wave, uh, only 15% of our patients are currently on oxygen. So the others coming have come for surgical or medical procedures, uh, come in an emergency, and we happen to discover they have this new variant. Oh, that's real interesting. So people are not coming to the hospital to say, I'm feeling real sick. Uh, I, I've tried my oximeter, which I think every South African knows what it is nowadays. It's below 90%. Uh, you need to admit me. These are people who arrive for other procedures and are then found to have COVID. Absolutely correct. And so we've got this for the first time, new category of patients that we are classifying as incidental COVID cases. We happen to discover that they have COVID. And this is a critically important point, Alec, because 
if you don't need oxygen, why are you in hospital? Um, and we wouldn't ordinarily admit someone whose oxygen saturations are in the 90s or in the high 90s. We generally admit those people whose oxygen saturations are below 90 and who have uh, evidence of pneumonia or COVID pneumonia. And I think this is the key issue, is that if this variant persists and it's shown to be fit and it takes over the Delta variant, then we believe certainly, and I know it's very early days, that uh, this wave of COVID-19 can be treated primarily at a primary care level uh, in community clinics, uh, at your GP or pharmacy. So the mortality rate clearly would be a heck of a lot lower than the previous beta or delta waves that, that hit us so hard in South Africa. And thus far it is, and certainly within our hospital setting it is. I think the one issue to measure in our country is excess deaths. They, those have risen. They doubled to the week ending 29th of November from 1,000 to 2,000. At the peak of the second wave in January, it was 15,500 excess deaths a week. So we still need to watch what's happening out there in the broader community. But I can tell you from the reports that come out from the NICD on a daily basis, uh, as well as our own internally, uh, the deaths are far fewer uh, than they ever were in any of the other previous waves. Within all the NetCare hospitals, have you had any deaths from Omicron, people who came into the hospital just with COVID-19 and, and this particular variant? Yes, uh, we've had approximately 12 deaths that we can ascribe to uh, covid uh, many of the other deaths were incidental trauma patients or patients with very significant uh, pre-existing comorbidities such as cancer. But the deaths that we can uh, ascribe uh, to COVID-19 definitively are approximately 12 since the 15th of November. And uh, that is a fraction of what we were seeing on a daily basis. Um, during any of the previous waves. And just for context, how many beds do you have at NetCare hospitals? So we have over 10,000 beds. And, and if I can just give you some context, just uh, uh, in terms of the severity of what we're seeing now compared to the previous three uh, waves, Alec, is that we have 470 patients across the country um, who are have COVID-19. Um, 65% of them are in uh, the Gauteng, and about 20% of them are in KwaZulu-Natal. It's rising now in the Western Cape. But when South Africa and community spread in South Africa was at 26-odd percent in the first, second, and third waves, we had 2,000 patients in our hospital in the first wave, 2,200 in the second wave, and over 3,000 in the third wave, we have under 500 patients in our hospital uh, in comparison to the same level of community spread or transmission of 25% and or 26%. And that's why I'm saying there's been a decoupling between the rise in community transmission and that of hospital admissions. And it tells us this is a far milder or moderate variant than the previous ones we've uh, seen.
Richard, this is your game. You've been in medicine your whole life and, of course, running a, a major hospital group. Is this the way that viruses mutate eventually, that they start off killing lots of people and then in time they get easier and, and less and then we get to live with them without really worrying that much about them? Uh, that is what happens, uh, Alec. This is what we saw in the Spanish flu. We call it an antigenic drift. Uh, the Spanish flu never went away. It stopped killing people, but it morphed into what we know as a very highly transmissible influenza or flu-like virus that is still with us today. One cannot say for certain that the Omicron variant is robust enough to become a global phenomenon and that it won't be outpaced or overtaken by another more severe variant. But certainly, if it remains as such, it augurs very well for the evolution of COVID-19. Again, probably too early uh, to make any definitive views on it. And finally, Richard, just from a broad philosophical perspective, if this is something that is not as deadly as we've seen with the initial parts of COVID-19, is it not time for us to live with it and to get vaccinated, then reduce your risk, etc., but for society just to continue into the future? Because it's not going to be, surely, the last pathogen that ever hits the human race. Well, of course. Um, you know, we've learned a lot about COVID-19, but again, um, you know, we still know very little about it. And um, the textbook has not yet been written. I can tell you this, uh, Alec, that when COVID-19 first emerged, everyone was saying that it was spread by fomites, uh, by surface spread. Uh, you could get it by touching people. We now know that that's not really the case. And if you look at the CDC data and elsewhere, the chances of getting that by touching a surface are minuscule. But what we do know is that it's uh, airborne transmission. So you can be vaccinated. But if you're not wearing a mask, you can be, you are susceptible to an airborne uh, virus. And so probably the most important non-pharmaceutical measure um, is wearing a mask. And we shouldn't stop wearing masks. If we want to return to normal life, let's make sure we're fully vaccinated. And let's make sure that we are wearing a mask and maintaining social distancing and also are living in ventilated environments. You know, that's what's important. It's very difficult to catch this outside, but certainly in stuffy indoors places, it is. And I think that um, if this virus does turn out to be mild and moderate and mainly cause asymptomatic um, disease, then I think we can certainly get back uh, to living a new normal, uh, as it were. Um, and at the moment, there's certainly no need, in our humble opinion, for any further restrictions uh, on interprovincial travel, on curfews, um, on international travel, uh, on any of these, because I don't believe we need to be flattening the curve uh, in the way we did in the first three waves, because at the moment, certainly in our network, uh, we're not seeing any pressure uh, on hospital beds uh, or on admissions. But what you said is very relevant. Does that mean that handshakes and hugs are back? I'm saying that hand hygiene is important. And I think that hand hygiene has helped us prevent some of the other viral spreads. And I can tell you, certainly within a hospital environment, it's critical. Because you can spread bugs from one patient to another. 
What I am saying is that uh, what is probably the most important, and literature and research has shown this unequivocally, is the wearing of masks. Because uh, the COVID-19 virus gets into our mouths, our oropharynxes, or our nasopharynxes, into our nasal passages and into our eyes, and that's how we become infected. Well, it's been quite a day, quite a week for the Cape Town Stock Exchange, whose chief executive, Eugene Boyson, is with us. Also with us today is new listing uh, on the CTSE, the chief executive of Gaia Fund Managers, who brought a brand new lead, a REIT, uh, which is a highly innovative uh, product and focused area, uh, Renier DeWitt. But let's kick off with you, Eugene. Uh, the, the listing by Renier's business uh, is now the ninth listing on the Cape Town Stock Exchange. How has the reception been from the Western Cape? So Western Cape, from Western Cape Government, City of Cape Town, West Grow, all the agencies, everyone's been massively accommodated, made us huge, feel hugely welcome in the mother city. But I think further to that as well, businesses, uh, judging by the number of requests, invitations we've had, um, everyone's keen to, to give us a leg up. Everyone's been keen to, to, to come on board. I think they've embraced the idea of having a stock exchange and a debt exchange in the mother city. And yeah, we're going we're gonna to deliver on those promises and provide them with an exchange that allows us to grow out these, these businesses in the future. You mentioned debt exchange. Have you had a debt listing yet? So this week we listed our first um, former listed debt. So we launched Capital Harvest. The issue was Capital One. Um, that was an agricultural listing, and it's one of the mechanisms to replace the underlying land bank and some of the failures at the land bank around cooperative finance. Um, we think it's one of many in the near future, and we're looking to to bed down our, our listed debt offering. We got our open market license at the end of August, and this has allowed us now to to properly go out and prosecute the business opportunity in this space. We have the platform that makes it really simple and easy for underlying issuers and also for underlying investors to participate on the platform. Renier DeWitt, good to be picking up with you as well. This is not your first listing on the Cape Town Stock Exchange. Why there rather than the big brother up north? Hi, Alec, and, and thanks for the opportunity. You know, we've, we've been working with Eugene and the team at, at Cape Town Stock Exchange for more than a year now, year and a half. Um, did our first listing with them, which was Guy Renewables 1 in October last year. Um, and I must say, if you're looking for a, a, an exchange platform and a team of people that are firstly open to innovative ideas, op- open to, you know, changing the static old way in which things were done um, and, and, you know, able to, to look at different, um, you know, different ways of doing things, the Capstone Stock Exchange is the place to be. And we welcome, it's great to have them in the mother city as well. But what about the trade? Surely the idea is of any exchange, you've got to have lots of people buying and selling. Is, is there sufficient demand and supply? So, Alec, our focus specifically at this stage is uh, to provide our investors with, with a platform, you know, a listed uh, preference share in this case, uh, which they, you know, they can, is, is buy an issue is also listed. It's specifically focused on uh, pension funds and, and collective investment schemes and also high net worth individuals that, 
that can uh, you know invest in the stock. Um, it doesn't need to be you know traded on a daily basis. Um, you know we're able to forecast what the prices are, and over time it will grow. Um, we're not stopping here. We're not stopping at the first preference share. There are going to be many more of these. And over time, we'll have a, a platform that trades more regularly and others will hold their shares for, for a long period of time. So what exactly is the underlying asset? Uh, so Guy Fibonacci Fiber REIT 1 um, is investing. It's dedicated to investing in fiber network, fiber network. So th- that's the infrastructure that basically carries the fiber to the home. Um, and I mean, we're talking here from home. We know that without this fiber, um, we wouldn't be able to communicate. It's, it's, it really is a way, uh, you know, the world has changed so much with COVID and, and all of the changes over the last two years that you, if you haven't got good connectivity at home or at, at, at school or at your office, um, you're really going to be left behind. Um, and what we're doing here is investing specifically in the networks. Uh, new areas, uh, new, um, you know, residential estates that we're unlocking here. Um, and what we do is we typically buy a network as soon as it's established and, and, and has a, a level of uptake that we're comfortable with. Is it a competitive area? It is a highly competitive area. Um, there are a number of entrants and, and, you know, some of the large listed um, telecoms players in the space, also in the unlisted space. And, you know, we're at a stage, it's interesting, South Africa has about 15% um, of our people have internet access. And, you know, we, if you compare that to the rest of the world, developed markets are at 87%. Um, on average, the world is at, at 78%. Those are the stats we're seeing. Um, so we are far behind. Um, and it is a bit of a land grab at the moment. So we're seeing, uh, you know, aggressive development um, out there. Um, and with that de- aggressive development, you, you need a bit of a secondary market to, to really take this and, and grow it aggressively over the next five to 10 years. So, uh, so it's an exciting space, Alec. It's, it's competitive. <laughs> so what's the investment case, Rene? If I am now uh, wanting to invest in the stock, in this new REIT? Alec, Guy's main focus uh, is, is on, a, on a number of areas. I mean, we firstly, firstly are ESG investors. We are investors that look to create a positive and sustainable impact on South Africa and its people. Um, so that's our investment thesis that we, that we you know, have a lens in terms of all the investments we make. Secondly, we, you know, we, we're a strong team with experience that can um, you know, act as, as, as the active asset managers for our investors. We then provide um, diversified opportunities, alternative assets that don't correlate to the market in, in, a, in a normal way. They provide you some inflation protection, um, you know, and at the end of the day, it's all about having um, a tax efficient, efficient structure um, at competitive fees. So that is our main thesis of, of what we want to do with this, with this, um, with this investment. And the yields? That will be earned by investors, by shareholders and prospective shareholders? So our investors, will uh, they're investing in preference shares. Uh, the, we will declare dividends to our investors. Um, it's obviously a tax-efficient structure, so there's no tax within the REIT. Um, and in that way, we're enhancing our yields. And our investors, um, our target is to return inflation plus 10% um, on our investments. Wow, Eugene, that's pretty cool. Inflation plus 10%. Are these the kind of opportunities that you're specifically targeting at the Cape Town Stock Exchange? 
Because I think it's more than just targeting that underlying yield. I think you ask yourself the question, how would I as an investor get access to some of these these asset classes? And I think that's often the, the question that's forgotten. If we genuinely want to democratize that access, this is a mechanism to do it. It's to give them that access to this asset class. Right now, it's in the domain of largely private companies that are that are owning and unlocking this space. So the Cape Town Stock Exchange provides you an opportunity as an investor to partake in this asset class. And yes, the, 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 the yields are attractive and the, the go-forward yields are attractive. And I think from a social perspective as well, the yield on the underlying investment is attractive. So how do I go about opening an account and investing in this REIT? What's the process? Have you, have you got brokers now that are linked to the Cape Town Stock Exchange? I think we do. You can go onto our website, www.ctexchange.co.za, and you can click onto the Invest tab, and that will link you up with the broker. Uh, open up your brokerage account, and you can invest in the counters on the Cape Town Stock Exchange. Are there market makers, though? I think that's the important part. You know, we saw recently Avenge uh, was being trading between $0.05 cents and $0.06, cents, which is a 20% spread. And if you are going to want to buy into Renier's company, but if there's a huge spread between buyers and sellers, it'd be pretty difficult to do. And I guess that's probably why um, investors or some investors would be waiting on the sidelines to say, is there enough of a market for me not to have too big a gap uh, or to be penalized if I want to invest in this way? So I think it's a good point, Alec. Right now, um, we still, in terms of the size of these count, of the counters in that um, SME and mid-cap space, with liquidity still remains the largest um, pre-cutting or investment hurdle that investors have to overcome. Um, we don't have any active market makers on the platform currently. We are in discussions introducing two new market makers to the platform that will then provide bid offer prices in those counters. But um, we only went live with open market at the end of September. Um, so it will take some time for us to aggregate up more brokers to the platform. But we are already two times what we had um, a month ago, and we'll be four times that at the end of Feb. So I think we'll see ourselves gradually grow out, and we, we, we hope for the same patience from investors as we grow out our, our liquidity. Um, market making will, will make one of the differences, but I think the bigger difference will, as we increase the number of re- increase the retail participation on the platform. That's your biggest driver and uh, creator of secondary liquidity is actually retail participation, not institutional participation. Do you see that being uh, some months still before you have retail participation or are people starting to open accounts now? So, Alec, they are. We already got currently 75,000 retail investors active on the platform and we see that number increasing. So that's how many registry accounts we have participating in our counters and we our underlying brokers are also signing up significant amounts um, we've also had Perisys now um, join the platform as an underlying broker so they bring that institutional reach to the platform and then we also saw TWK secondary list their counter and offering on a onto A2X also providing them with an institutional access to their counter so um, you know we we think that we think it grows out, and it's growing out faster than 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 we anticipated. Rene, just to close off on your side, this is your second listing on the Cape Town Stock Exchange. Have you got others in the pipeline? <laughs> We'd like to do many more, but I I think it's it's important for us at this stage to to really bed down uh, those two listings to grow it out 
I mean, uh, we've done our first few transactions and, and, and really to expand this platform and, and, and this vehicle, uh, bring in many more investors um, onto the platform and, 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 you know, from there we'll grow. Um, so we have many innovations, but I think at, at some stage you have to say, let's focus a bit and, and let's do and, and, and make sure these ones work properly. <laughs> Well, thanks for being with us today. And we look forward to being back in your company tomorrow. Same time, same place uh, from the Biz News team. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.